Good morning. My name is Randy Binkley. I'm a member of the teaching team here at LCF. And if you've been around here, uh, you know we're currently going through a series on Psalms. And last week, uh, Psalm 19 was looked at, which talked about how to worship God when God seems near. And I'm, I'm sure that you, like me, would like really for every day to be like that. Wouldn't we like every day to begin with uh, just waking up, being aware of God's presence, being uh, thankful for His goodness and His grace, uh, in anticipation, looking forward to the day, looking forward to the things God's going to do with that day. I mean, I think we would all like that to be every day of our lives, wouldn't we? But in reality, not every day is like that, is it? There are some other days. And in the Psalms, one of the things that we're looking at is how do we worship God in all of the different seasons of life? And this morning we're going to take a look at Psalm 73 and learn a little something about worshiping God when life seems unfair. When life seems unfair. Asaph in Psalm 73 is is wrestling with that. Have you ever felt like life is unfair? Have you ever felt like maybe you've been dealt a bad hand? That you kind of got the short end of the stick? It may not seem like something that we as Christians are supposed to talk about because, you know, we think we're supposed to be Psalm 19 every day of our lives and it's just all good and we praise God and everything moves on. But Asaph had to wake up that day and he was struggling with the fact that he was in a season of life where he had some nagging questions that he was wrestling with primarily about God's fairness but ultimately about God's goodness. So let's take a look this morning at Asaph's walk through this season of discontent in his life and learn a few things about how we might have to navigate our way if one of those seasons comes our direction. It starts off in Psalm 73, verses 1 and 2. It starts off with a solid foundation. He says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, and my steps almost slipped. When I was a little kid, one of the vacations we took was we went to Colorado Springs to the Garden of the Gods. You ever been there, Garden of the Gods? Uh, Beautiful park, isn't it? It's got these majestic granite structures and cliffs that just stick out of the ground. It's a wonderful place to be. But the, uh, the memory I have of it is we were kind of around the visitor center, and off to the right is this large cliff, you know, granite cliff, and I saw a lot of activity over there because it looked like a couple boys had maybe wandered away from mom and dad and had started just kind of climbing up the side of that cliff. And I'm sure it was fun at the beginning, and they just kind of kept going and kept going. But there came a point when they were about a third of the way up there where they realized, we're pretty high now. We can't go any further up, and we just figured out we can't go back down. And it occurs to us, We can't hold on here forever. Kind of a scary place, isn't it? I can't go up. I can't go back down. And I know I can't hold on here for much longer. So there was a rescue going on, trying to retrieve these uh, errant boys. And it's it's an uncomfortable place to be when you're in a slippery place, a place where you're not sure of. We uh, we really like Colorado, so we like to try to get out there every summer and... uh, Try to climb a 14er, and last summer we went out, and we went out with another couple, and we did Mountain Democrat, and that was Sharon's first 14er, which was an accomplishment for her. 
But after we did that, her and Di came on down, and Lance and I decided uh, there's three other 14ers around there, so while we're up there, let's run the ridge and just go hit those other three 14ers, and then we'll come back down. And uh, you can do four in a day. So we took off to do that, and that was fine as while we were up here, but then there comes a point when you got to come down from the high country back down to where normal people live. And uh, that meant going down the, the side of Mount Bross. And what was kind of unsettling about going down the side of Mount Bross is there was a trail. It was about 12 inches wide. But this trail was right on the side of the mountain. It's about a 40-degree angle. And the whole side of the mountain was what was called a scree field. Anybody know what a scree field is? Okay, if you play around the mountains, you do. A whole bunch of little rocks that aren't connected to anything. So, you know, you would plant your foot, and it moves. (laughs) And you just hope after about six inches of movement, it stops moving. You know, it's just a bunch of unstable rock, little rocks on the side of the mountain. And it occurred to me, even though I don't have advanced degrees in physics, if a person's body weight starts going down there, and there's really nothing to stop you but loose rock, this could be a long trip before you ever stopped. So as we were kind of coming down off that, of course, you know, I was with Lance, and so we were going to show no fear. You know, we were putting up the good bravado. But internally, I, I was picking my steps very carefully because I thought if you start down, you won't be stopping for a long time. And I was a little anxious about that. Didn't have good footing, and that concerned me. And that's exactly how the psalmist is feeling this morning. He says, I was in a slippery place. Uh, I didn't have good footing. I was kind of losing it, and I knew that. Now, as a young believer, I think sometimes we can, in our naivete, momentarily convince ourselves that since God is now our Father, which is true, and since God is good, which is true, and since God is sovereign over the circumstances of men, which is true, that we put plus, 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 and then we come up with equals, God, like some big bulldozer, is just going to go before me, and he's going to knock off the mountains, fill in the valleys, and life down here is going to be a cakewalk. It's going to be just an easy little trip because, you know, my God the Father is just making it easy for me. We can think that, can't we? It's, it's kind of a naive thought. Well, the psalmist is struggling because he's looking at his life, and he's saying, I'm looking around here, and it seems to me that other people have an easier life than I do. So he's struggling with the question, God, whose side are you really on here? Or another question, God, is this fair or are you being fair? As a believer, have you ever felt like the grass is greener on the other side? Well, Asaph was kind of looking over the fence and he was feeling that way. He was envying the lifestyles of the godless. And to be absolutely honest about it, he was feeling quite sorry for himself. He was indulging in what you might call a personal pity party. Now, we might wonder, well, how could a Christian who's filled with the Holy Spirit kind of get to that place? And we don't really know the exact circumstances or details of Ace of Situation right here. But I would say, having lived a few years on this earth, it's not uncommon for Christians to kind of struggle with this temptation sometimes after a season of loss. Maybe that's loss of a relationship, loss of a job, loss of financial security, loss of health. But after seasons of loss, this is probably a temptation that will knock at your door. Or sometimes during seasons of extreme fatigue 
or long periods of struggle. This might be a temptation that knocks at the door. But whatever his exact circumstances were, there was what he knew and what he felt, and they were slugging it out in this internal conflict. And the reason we're looking at this is because as believers, sometimes there's a temptation to fall into this slippery place that Asaph was talking about. So let's take a look at it in verses 1 and 2. We see that he, he starts by almost giving us the conclusion. He starts with the ending, and the ending was he was back on solid footing. He was back with a strong, confident, vibrant trust in the goodness of God and his care for his people. So he ends his journey concluding with what Paul would write in Romans 12 too later on, that the will of God is good, it is acceptable, in fact, it is perfect. But before we write this off as a non-issue, let's take a look at his journey, and let's see what we can learn from that. In verses 3 through 16, we see the second part of his journey, and that was a slippery temptation. Verse 3 says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He started with a tainted perspective, and that perspective was envy. Envy has been defined as a feeling of discontent and resentment arousing from contemplation of another's desirable possessions or qualities, along with a strong desire to have them for oneself. Envy is kind of like a virus, and it attacks a spiritually healthy individual and can rob them of things like thankfulness and joy and contentment and peace of mind and faith in God's goodness. The initial symptoms of this virus of envy would be things like conflicted worship, confused thinking, decreased spiritual desire. But a tainted perspective doesn't stay just a tainted perspective. It leads then to something else. In verses 4 through 12, we see tainted observations. The psalmist is looking over the fence at the pasture next door, and he concludes this, verse 4. For there's no pains in their death, and their body is fat, and they're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them, their eyes bulge from fatness, the imaginations of their heart run riot, they mock wickedly speak of oppression, they speak from on high and have set their mouth against the heavens, their tongue parades through the earth, therefore his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them." They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge of the, with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they have increased their wealth. Tainted perspective led to tainted observations. He says, I'm looking around, and here's what I see. He said, the wicked are prospering. I mean, I'm trying to run an honest operation here and honor God with my finances, and I'm barely getting by. But they, they have no struggles. I have struggles everywhere I turn. They're healthy, they're strong, and I'm weak and I'm sick. They're free from the burdens of man, and I am overwhelmed by what's on my plate right now. They're proud and self-centered, and I'm trying to be humble and learn to serve others, and I'm just getting walked on here. They're violent and have thoughts only towards evil. They oppress others and always get their way. I try to consider the needs of others. I never get my way. They take whatever they want. I never get what I want. They scoff at God and people look to them for their opinions. Nobody's asking my opinion lately. 
They're always carefree. They're always wealthy. And I'm just loaded down and needy. So you see that tainted perspective led to these tainted observations. And the tainted observations then lead to some tainted conclusions. Verses 13 through 16. At this point, make no mistake, the pity party here is in full bloom. Verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children when I pondered to understand this. It was troublesome in my sight. He says, my conclusion is, what am I doing here? Why am I trying to be pure? Why not just go with the flow? Why not just be like everybody else? Why not just eat and drink for tomorrow we die? Because it just seems like God is out to get me. And in verse 15, he says, I can't believe I'm even saying this. I know it's not true, but boy, does it resonate with how I feel right now. And you see this massive internal conflict is going on between what he believes and what he feels, and gears are just getting ground as he tries to figure this out. So I said, I know what I'm, uh, what I'm saying is not true, so I'll just keep my mouth shut. You know, that'll keep me out of a little trouble. I'll keep my mouth shut until I sit down and figure this thing out. So he sits down to figure it out. Only one problem there. <clears throat> he couldn't. <laughs> He said, I kept my mouth shut. I sat there. I tried to reason my way through this. I tried to think my way through this. I tried to figure it out. And he ends up, I can't. I cannot figure this out. I can't think my way out of this one. So where do I go now? I can't go up. I can't go down. And I can't hang on much longer. Well, it's looking pretty bleak there, but the the battle here begins to turn about verse 17. Verse 17 through 20, we see an overlooked destination. Verse 17, it says, Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction, how they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. What happened in verse 17? He said, until I came into the sanctuary of God. Now, that's not talking about a magical, mystical, physical place. It's not like you've got to find the right place and just go to that place. This is a nice room. I like this room. I like the fact that it is air conditioning and lights, and it's handy to have a PA. We have done it without that. But, you know, it's nice when those things are all working. But there's nothing special about this place. There's nothing about this GPS spot that's any more holy or special than the parking lot or the house next to it or the lot next to that. So it's not, he's not talking about, I went to this special place. What he's talking about when he says, when I came into the sanctuary of God, is I went to a place in my spirit. I went to a place in my heart. I went to worship of God. When his reasoning abilities failed to bring deliverance from this conflict, he finally turned to the Lord for insight into the situation. And it just leaves me wondering what it is about our human experience that we are so reluctant to turn to the Lord for insight when we experience difficulties and trouble. 
Why is it that we'll go almost everywhere else first until forced to realize, I should go to God with this. I should get God's wisdom on this. We, we probably need to be a little quicker on the uptake here and realize, wouldn't that be a great place to go first instead of absolutely last? You know, I'm working on that one. God, <clears throat> in worship, began to, to put the puzzle together for Asaph. And really, most of the important issues of life only make sense when we finally find our answers in the worship of a sovereign, loving God. And God brought, began to bring deliverance by opening Asaph's eyes. You see, Asaph apparently had a vision problem. There were a couple of problems with his vision. It was short-sighted, it was fuzzy, and it was misdirected. He was just looking in the wrong direction. The fuzziness led to these inaccurate generalizations. Look at that list he made there. Really? Are all, all of those living apart from God? Is that, that a good description of their lifestyle? No. The short-sightedness caused him to be blind to the reality of eternity. It's like he was looking at life, but all he was seeing was this little sliver here, life on this earth. And then he began to see the whole picture, which is life for eternity. Changed his perspective. He had to get past that short-sightedness. It, he also was, it was misdirected, and he was just looking in the wrong direction. He was looking at the wrong thing. But as God began to bring healing to his spirit, the final state of, of our destiny, he realized, is a whole lot more important than a couple years here on earth. And his destiny was looking pretty good. But those folks over the fence that he was so envious of, if, if they don't come to faith in Christ faith in God before eternity, uh, their eternity is not looking good. It's separated from a holy, loving God. And in verse 18, he began to realize that their positions of wealth and power aren't that sure either. I mean, I would submit to you, you can pick up any daily newspaper, assuming you can still find a daily newspaper. I think a few people are still printing them. But pick up a newspaper, and somewhere in that paper, I can find you an article of somebody who had it all. You know, somebody for whom, boy, the pieces of life just fell in place right before him. You know, they had the money, they had the positions, they had the authority. It just looked from the outside like life, you know, that was the perfect life. But then in a moment, in an instant, probably the reason for that news article, everything changed. And it was gone. Maybe it was a car accident. Maybe... A plane went down. Maybe investments went south. Maybe the jury came back with a guilty verdict. Maybe the doctor said cancer, whatever. There's just one of a hundred ways where things can turn on a dime. And Asaph began to realize that uh, it wasn't quite the way he was interpreting it as he looked over that fence. And the psalmist's vision came back into focus and things began to change and he began to get a new perspective, a healthy perspective, a fresh perspective. You might say God in worship gave him a little bit of a perspective tune-up. Anybody here this morning in need of a perspective tune-up? Let's take a look at what this new perspective provided for him. Find it in verses 21 through 28. The new perspective started with a new humility before God, verses 21 and 22. Verse 21 says, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. At this point, he recognized that God had not made a mistake here, that he had. 
You see, originally he was charging God with being unfair and felt like he was getting the short end of the stick. Now he realized that God absolutely was being unfair and he was getting the long end of the stick. He realized that he stood before God just like you and I stand before God. Sinners standing before a holy God. You don't want God to be fair. Trust me. What would fair mean for sinners standing before a holy God? Fair means judgment, death, separation from God. That's fair. Well, what have we received? We have received the gift of eternal life. We have received love, grace, mercy, the riches of Christ. We've been imputed with the righteousness of Christ. Is that fair? That is not fair. That is outrageously generous. God is not fair, and we got the long end of the stick, not the short end. He realized that God's love, grace, and mercy goes far beyond fairness. And instead of giving us what we deserve, give us everything that we've never deserved. A change of perspective. He deserved death, but he got life. He recognized he'd spoken thoughtlessly, ignorantly, he said. So he confessed that, he repented, and he humbled himself before God. In verse 23, we see another thing that was part of his new attitude, a new appreciation of God's presence. In verse 23, it says... Nevertheless, I am continually with you, and you have taken hold of my right hand. Yet at this point, you know, Asaph's probably still driving that old chariot that he was driving before. He didn't necessarily get an upgrade, and he was probably still living in the same neighborhood, didn't have the largest palace in the land. But he began to see some things he was overlooking. He began to realize that he had been given some things that money couldn't buy, that no amount of gold or no amount of dollars could ever purchase. Here, do a little math on this one. How much is the 24-7 loving presence of an all-powerful God walking with you every day of your life worth? How many dollars would you assess to that? How many bars of gold would equal a loving Heavenly Father who walks with you every minute of your life for your entire life, who loves you and guides you and fills you with His power? Can you come up with a number? No. There's no amount of bars of gold that are worth something that valuable. So he had a new appreciation of God's presence. In verse 24, we also see that he had a new openness to God's leading. 24, with your counsel you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. He recognized that following God's path is the path that does lead to eternal life and abundant life, not the path away from it. Now, to be sure, life does come with challenges and difficulties. But in 24, you see that he realized this God who loves him will counsel him and guide him. So when we experience those challenges and difficulties, God does not abandon us and leave us and say, well, that's a tough one, Randy. Hope things turn out for you. See you later. No. He counsels me. He guides me. He walks me through those challenging areas of life. And he uses them to build my faith and to Make me more like Christ. Ultimately, they are good things. 
So he realized that God guides him every step of the way. And then in the second part of that verse, and then when it's all done, afterwards receives me into glory. You see, we need someone, since life isn't easy, we do need someone who knows more about it than we do, who can guide us through the dangerous places. And God says, I'll do that for you. About a month ago, I took a group of guys and we went down to uh, the middle of Arkansas to a cabin down there and did a little men's retreat. And uh, one of the things we did that day is we, uh, we canoed the Buffalo River. And so we were out on the Buffalo River, and one of the guys in the group had been there a week before. And a week before, uh, there had been a storm, and it had created a strainer at a certain spot in the river. Now, how many people know what a strainer is? How many canoeists do we have out here? All right. <clears throat> of course, a river has a current. And as the current goes down, a strainer is when a tree falls over the current. It doesn't go into the water. It sits on top of the water. So the current is still going under that tree. Now, there's river over here. And so if you're just paddling down, you know, on a lazy day going down the river, you just assume that the channel goes over there, that the current goes over there, or that you could very easily just canoe over there and get around it. But in reality, what you don't see is that that very strong current takes you right under that tree, which is not a problem until, of course, you hit the tree. At that point, the water under you is powerfully moving this way. The tree is stopping you from going that way. Something's going to give here. And no matter how strong you are, no matter how hard you can paddle in that moment, you can't out-paddle the current. So what happens is, if you're unaware, and most people are because they, this was, was kind of at a blind spot in the river, you would come around there, you would think you would be going right, you'd realize you're not, you'd start to paddle, but at that point, it's too late because the current has you, and now you're parallel parked with the tree. But since the water's still moving, the canoe begins to go down on the front edge. And what happens when that front lip gets one inch below the water? <laughs> Woof! <laughs> right under that tree. Uh, not only does the boat go under, but people go under too. And if you're lucky, you pop up. If you're not lucky, and there are branches under there that catch you, well, then you've been on your last canoe trip. Um, it's dangerous, and you don't see it. But you see, we had someone with us who said, before we got in the water, there's a dangerous spot up here, and I'm going to let you know when we get there. I just want to give you a heads up on it. When we got close to it, he's saying, okay, it's around this next bend, so here's what you want to do. You know, you have two options here. You need to either position your canoe to be like this, and then at that point, you paddle as hard as you can this direction, and you'll get by it, or you need to get out here and forage around there and just portage around it. But we had someone who knew that this was a dangerous area, and could tell us what to do. So we were fine. But we felt bad for all the clueless people behind us. So we kind of hung out about a half hour and just helped people get their canoes through. And it was really funny to watch them because, you know, they would, they would start coming into the area and they'd be, we were kind of standing in the water there. They'd look at us like, what are you guys doing? Why don't you get out of the way? You know, we're doing just fine. And then they would realize they're being pulled that direction <laughs> instead of this direction. And then they would start to paddle, but they still wanted to look cool because, you know, they had an audience. Then they'd paddle a little harder. And then they'd realize we can't paddle hard enough. And then they'd hit the tree, you know, and then they'd try to look cool. And then they'd start to panic. And you could just see them go from zero to ten on the panic level really quickly. <laughs> but we would grab the boats and kind of pull them out. 
There are dangerous, tricky, difficult parts to life, but the psalmist realized, with your counsel, you will guide me. So he realized, man, if I follow God's lead here, he knows the river, he knows the future, he knows things I don't see until I'm too late would get in them. And if I follow his guide, he's going to keep me safe. Verse 25 through 27, we see it also, this new perspective had a new desire for God. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. When he had allowed envy to infect his thinking, it left him conflicted and distant from God. But once his eyesight problem was taken care of, his pity party was canceled, and that was replaced with a worship service and a celebration of thanksgiving. And his heart was once again filled with a desire for God that was greater than the desire for the things of this world. The last thing we see that this new perspective, this tune-up got him, was a new contentment in God, verse 28. He says in verse 28, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. At this point, Asaph has gotten past the strainer. He's back on solid ground. He says, The nearness of God is my good. What is he saying by that? He's saying, Yes, you know, I look around now, and instead of feeling like I got the short end of the stick, I realize God has given me the long end of the stick. I am blessed way beyond anything I ever deserve. And the only appropriate attitude for me to have is just thankfulness. And God has given me so many more things than I need and deserve. But at the end of it all, even with all these good gifts he's given to us to enjoy, he says, I'm back where I belong, which is realizing that for me, God is enough. I don't have to have God plus this, plus this, plus this. That the nearness of God, the goodness of God, that is enough for me. He's back with a new contentment in God. Now, what's changed between verses 3 and verses 28? Well, I'd submit to you Asaph's circumstances probably haven't changed one iota. But what has changed has been his perspective. What has changed has been his attitude. You see, he stopped comparing himself with others, which is always a bad idea. Now, Asaph here is looking at comparing himself with those who, who don't even claim to know God or follow him. But, you know, that, that problem can also infect a, the body of Christ. I mean, you can be looking at other believers in the body and saying, well, how come my gifts aren't like their gifts? Or how come my opportunities aren't like their opportunities? Or how come my family's not like their family? Or fill in the blank with whatever. But we can be looking at each other. And that can be just as dangerous as looking at the godless and envying them. There was a point when Jesus was talking to Peter in John 21, 22. And Jesus is explaining to Peter what living a life of serving God is going to mean for him. Now it's going to go. And Peter goes, well, that's great. But what about John? I want to know about John. Tell me how John's going to end. What are you going to do with John? And Jesus kind of just looks at Peter and goes, uh, what is that to you? <laughs> that's a polite way of saying, that's none of your business. How John follows me is a business between me and John. You follow me. You see, in the body of Christ, we're all unique. We're told that in a variety of places in Scripture. 
So everybody's got different gifts. Everyone's got different opportunities. Everyone's got a different kind of race to run, if you will. And it's really a waste of time to compare races. Jesus said to Peter, don't worry about John. How about this? Why don't you just follow me? Why don't you just use the opportunities of your life to bring me glory? And I'll take care of John. John and I will handle that. So that was Asaph's journey. And it ended with uh, what the writer of Hebrews would probably summarize this way. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and every sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Not someone else's race, but our race. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. You see, when we're looking at others, we will pollute our souls with envy and discontent. When we're looking at Jesus, we're going to fill our souls with the right attitudes, the right actions, the right reasons. So last week, Psalm 19, when God is near. This week, Psalm 73, when life seems unfair. Which of those two psalms best captures your world these days? Which one best describes your experience right now? I want to encourage you, if the the glitter of the world stuff has caught your eye and left you feeling a little envious this morning, to do what Asaph did. Visit the sanctuary of God. Ask God to give you an eye exam. Take away the fuzziness. Take away the short-sightedness. And to give you a renewed perspective. One that has humility and appreciation of his presence and an openness to his leading and a desire for God and a contentment in him. Asaph, make no mistakes about it, he was in a dangerous spot. He was in a slippery place. But he got to a strong and a healthy place. And this morning, if you find yourself in a slippery place, then take a look at Psalm 73 and know that there's a way back. There's a way to solid footing again. And there's people after the service that would be available to pray with you to start that journey. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, thank